So today is November 6, 2011. Our message this morning is called Entrust. Entrust. And uh, we're going to start in 2 Timothy, the first chapter, and the 11th verse. So tell me when you're there. Second Timothy 1 Timothy 1.11. There. There. In 2 Timothy 1.11. And of this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what he has entrusted to me. Now, some of your translations may say what I have entrusted to him. The complete Jewish Bible says what he has entrusted to me. The New American Standard says what he has entrusted to me. And the NIV chose to say what I have entrusted to him. I'm going to take a pastoral prerogative here and tell you I believe that Paul did not entrust to God something, but rather God entrusted to Paul something. Today we're going to speak about that very thing that God entrusted to Paul. And in fact, Paul turned and entrusted to someone else, and they in turn entrusted it to someone else. As we keep reading, he says in verse 13, What you have heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Skip down to 2.1. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses. Entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. What an interesting thing. Paul was appointed as a herald. A herald is somebody who announces something. He was appointed as an apostle. An apostle means one who is sent. He's in the fivefold ministry. He's sent to start churches. He said also, and a teacher, somebody who explains what God has given them. He had something that was entrusted to him. The kingdom is founded upon the fact that the God in heaven speaks to ordinary men. This is why Peter was called the rock, and on that rock the church was built, because Peter had heard something in the heavens, and it was not revealed to him by men, but by God. Paul had a similar experience, did he not? Who appeared to him on the road to Damascus? Jesus. Did it change Paul's life? Was it a revelation that he ran with? Was it a revelation that he announced everywhere he went? Was it something that he became a teacher of? Yes, then Paul was entrusted with something that men did not give him. They may have affirmed it. They may have validated it. They may have encouraged it. They may have added to it. But it was a gift that was given him from God. Paul then turned around and said to others, keep this as a pattern. Keep it as a sound pattern. Guard it and entrust it to other people. So in everything that we're entrusted with, there is a receiving, there is a retaining, and there is a transmitting. This is something that is the kingdom. Having received knowledge of the Lord, we retain it. We even grow it. And then we transmit it. This will be what our message is about today. But Paul was not Norwegian. What was Paul? Jewish. Jewish. And Paul, when speaking about this, tells Timothy just a few sentences after what I read. Uh, In verse 3, 
Endure hardship with us like a good soldier. He goes on to say, compete like an athlete. He then says, work hard like a farmer. It's an interesting thing. Soldiers understand authority. So when you're entrusted with an order as a soldier, what do you do? Whatever you are told to do. Athletes, they compete. They're vigorous. They run to win. But they compete according to certain rules or they're disqualified. He also refers to a farmer. A farmer works hard all day for one purpose. It's not to plow the ground. It's not to plant seed. He doesn't go out to water for the sake of watering. A farmer is working hard because his life is about growth. And he sees success in growth. This is what we do with a deposit that the Lord has given us. We do what our Lord commands us like good soldiers. We compete vigorously but according to rules. And our glory that God gives us is in what it produces, not just what we were given. The glory is in the growth, friends. Can you say that? There is glory in growth. Now we often focus on personal growth and amen, 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 amen for personal growth. But your greatest personal growth goes when you transmit what God has given you to other people. That is where you grow as a person. Otherwise, you are a repository. There are two bodies of water in Israel. They can be seen on those maps in the back. The two bodies of water in Israel that are most prominent are the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea or Salt Sea. The Sea of Galilee has in its northernmost quarter an entrance. The Jordan River flows into it. In its southernmost quarter, it has an exit. The Jordan River then flows out of it. The Salt Sea, also known as the Dead Sea, has only something being poured into it. And so no life exists there. None. It is simply a repository. In fact, it is so harsh to life that even if you put living organisms in it, they die. What an amazing thing that something could be so mineral rich, so blessed, and so dead. But if you have eyes to see, this is the life of the average complacent Christian. Always receiving, never doing anything with it. You would think that vitamins would be a good thing. You can take so many vitamins that you become toxic. You would think that medicine would be a good thing. It's for healing. But what happens if you take too much? Friends, we were made to receive something. To grow it, retain it, run in it. But also to transmit it. And I wanted to talk to you today about that. But since Paul was not Norwegian, what was Paul? It's important to put this in its Jewish context, otherwise we pass over it. You'll hear all kind of analogies. I was told one time that this is like a great race and somebody's handing you a baton and you take that baton and you run with it. And this sounded like a great analogy. Of course, it's an American analogy. You know what Paul never saw? Paul never saw a 4 by 100 relay race. They didn't exist. Paul did, however, come from an unbroken line of rabbis that went all the way back to the mountain of God. Wanted to talk to you about them. Do you think it's a mistake, by the way, that Matthew 1, that Luke in the first chapter both introduced Jesus' genealogy? I mean, have you ever walked up to anybody and said, Hi, my grandfather was blah, blah, blah. My father was blah, blah, blah. That just doesn't happen, does it? But when introducing the letter, Jesus' nationality is established. And it's established because Jews were world-renowned for their customs 
for their practices, their way of life, because they were dictated by God for a reason, and it was to first teach them, and secondly, teach the world. In the book of Joshua, I will read to you from the first chapter. You may turn there if you like, but I promise this morning, I won't promise tomorrow morning, but this morning, I will not be lying to you. It says, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. This is the eighth verse. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and you will be successful. The word of God was something that you would get, but then you would meditate. It means to mull over, to speak it to yourself day and night. There was a reason for this. After receiving the revelation of God, you had to do something with it. You had to make sure that you first retained it. Then as the nation matured, they did something else with it. They grew it. What are the first five books of the Bible called? Torah, Pentateuch, books of Moses. Are there only five books in the Jewish canon? Why? Because they grew the revelation that God gave them. Men like Jeremiah sought the heart of God and God poured out his counsel into him. Men like Isaiah cried out to the living God and God spoke back to him. Men like Samuel chronicled things. There were righteous men who took what they were given and they sought more. And they were so reliable that the word that they were given was so trustworthy it was in the canon of scripture and Jesus himself quoted it. Before all of the big language, before all of the grand claims, the story of Jesus is about a Jewish man living in a Jewish region among Jewish people, calling people back to the way of the Jewish God. And their history started with God speaking to a nation, the people retaining those words, the people transmitting those words, and the people growing that revelation. You are now grafted into that heritage. Having received a revelation, our job is to retain it, to grow it, and to transmit it. On this subject, a man called Rambam by the Jewish sages, Moshe Maimonides, who lived in the 11th and 12th century, said every person in Israel is obligated to be engaged in Torah learning. Whether one is poor or wealthy, whether one is whole in body or afflicted with suffering, whether one is young or old and feeble, even a poor person who is supported by charity and goes door to door seeking benevolence, even the man supporting his wife and children, everyone is required to find some set time during the day and during the night to study the Torah because it is said, you shall meditate on it day and night. What an amazing thing. People that heard God speak and they took it so seriously that they actually did it. What an amazing thing. What did we preach on Wednesday? Who can tell me the title of the message? Open book. Who said that? All right, Tara. Drama is not a fruit of the Spirit. Come get this. What did we preach on Sunday? 30, 60, and 100 fold. See, we have difficulty retaining something for four days. We have difficulty retaining something for a week. I'd give you a sticker, but they belong to you. But when the Jews were given something, they retained it for 1,600 years so that a book 
a, a scroll of Isaiah in Jesus' day matched the scroll that Isaiah wrote. And today, the scroll that we have matches the one that Jesus wrote. And the Dead Sea Scrolls prove it. They took it so seriously that they did it. Could you be thankful for somebody like that? We're called to do exactly the same thing. I'm going to read to you from Deuteronomy 6 in the fourth verse. You hear me say this all of the time. Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. The three parts of man. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. Have you ever wondered how Jesus discipled men? He simply talked to them about what his father was talking to him about. They did it while they were walking. They did it while they were sitting. They did it while they were standing, while they were going in and out of their houses. They did it in the same way that any Jewish father was supposed to teach his Jewish son. But when we disciple, how do we do it? We sit 30 chairs neatly in the classroom and we transmit information and then give tests. Do you see why we're a society that is based entirely upon head knowledge? The way that this would work would be an apprenticeship in Israel. The first apprenticeship you ever accepted was one that was completely involuntary. Your daddy said do it and you said yes sir. And if you didn't do it, he had a rod that would drive that foolishness right out of your mind. You learned from your father who was learning from God. So it was not difficult for you then to grow up with something having been deposited inside of you. How many of you think it's your teacher's job to teach your children? It's your teacher's job to help you teach your children. How many of you think it's the youth pastor's job to pastor your children? It is your youth pastor's job to help you pastor your children. Israel understood this. Josephus, during the days of Jesus, remarked about the Jewish educational system. He said, it's not seen as a luxury. It's not even an option. Education is key to our survival as a people. The Torah was seen as so central to life that if you lost it, you lost everything. He then added the words, above all else, we pride ourselves in educating our children. Josephus saw the people of Israel as distinct from the rest of the Roman Empire for their emphasis on depositing in the children the Word of God. And in depositing the Word of God, they would focus on retaining it. They would speak it to one another everywhere they went. They would focus on transmitting it. Older brothers would tell younger brothers. Every feast in Israel, every holiday. At Christmas time, what do we do? What's the biggest thing we do at Christmas? What was it? Presents. Presents. This is what we do. We open presents. I got an iPod. What did you get? My kids did better than your kids. Mine got a bike. Mine got a basketball goal. Every Jewish feast begins and ends with the children asking the oldest person in the house questions. And the feasts were designed to cause questions to be asked. Daddy, why do we do this? We do this because the Lord, blah, 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 blah. Actually, that word is not blah, blah. You know what it is? Yada, yada, yada. That is Hebrew for I know, I know, I know. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 11. I'm going to read this one to you. I found out if you don't turn occasionally, you might turn me out. Tune, tune me out. Turn out, that's a bad thing. 
In Deuteronomy 11, look at the 18th verse. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. How do you fix something in your heart and in your mind? Friends, you're going to have to focus on it. You, you really are. It's an interesting thing that our God is often spoken of in three parts. And over and over and over the Bible speaks of man in three parts. He speaks of our heart, our mind, and our strength in loving Him in all three parts. Almost as if you have a soul, you have a spirit, you have a body, and He wants you wholly devoted to Him. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates before I read any further. When you hear this and you think about your door frame, why is the Word of God not written on your door frame? Come on, bold girl. What was it? <laughs> it's because it doesn't match. What do you do when you read this? What do you do as a Western Christian when you read this? What do you do? It was, that was the Jews. It was for them. Or, if you read it, you might go, he didn't really mean write it on there. He's just trying to emphasize that you're supposed to know it when you go in and out, Right? We spiritualize and intellectualize everything. But what happened to a Jew when they heard this word? They wrote it on their door frames. When he said, bind it on your hands and head, they did. They're called phylacteries and teflon. And we think it's a mark of a Pharisee because Jesus rebuked some Pharisees for liking their phylacteries longer than other people's. In other words, mine are better than yours. This misses the point. Some had a wrong heart, but they were doing the thing that God said. If every day you wrapped your hands in the Word of God, what would you think about doing with your hands? Holy things. The Word of God. Now, I'm not suggesting tomorrow that you all buy leather straps and wrap your arms. I'm suggesting, though, that we consider when we hear the Word what we do with it, rather than saying, hmm, I understand what this meant. One is a very Greek concept. The other is a very Jewish concept. Concept. This is all coming back to what you're entrusted with. It was meant for you to do something, not understand something. As you move on through this, he tells you in the 26th verse that he's setting before you a blessing and a curse. He goes on in the very same passage to say things like, look, when you do these things, you're going to run out your enemies. Your lives are going to be successful. How many of you believe that the Word of God will make your life successful? Yeah, it is a direction. It shows you what to aim for. One of the great debates among ancient rabbis was it is true. It's true. We have to teach our children. We have a burden to teach our children because they're chosen out of the whole nation, out of the whole world. There is nobody as special in all of the world. You know, this has caused many people to hate the Jews. Can you imagine saying, I'm the one that God chose? All you people out there, what do you mean you people? I mean you unchosen people. I'm the one that God chose. Could that cause some envy? Yeah, does it mean that they all handled it well? But it doesn't make it any less true. Out of all the nations, God chose one nation. You need to be very careful how you speak about the Jewish people. All of you, old, young, doesn't matter to me. Jesus was the king 
of the Jews. It's what he was killed for. It's what was said in three languages above his head. And this means you have a responsibility to watch your speech about the Jewish people. The debate was at what age do we accept our children for pupils? When are they old enough to understand? An interesting thing written in the Misha says this, under the age of six, we do not receive a child as a pupil. From six upwards, we accept him and we stuff him as an ox with grain. How many of you thought about your child at six years old being stuffed three times a day with the Word of God? Yeah, see, this is the focus of a nation. You know why? From Sinai, God entrusted the whole nation. An entire group of people heard the voice of God. And they took it seriously. It scared them to death. They said, we don't want to hear it again. <laughs> uh, Moses, you go here for us. But they took it so seriously that it formed their whole nation. What have you heard from God and what has it formed in you? And once it was formed in you, how hard have you worked to retain it? Did you forget what God told you last year? If you're like me, you may have had visions. You may have had God speak to you and then you go years not even remembering that it occurred. Right? Because it's become a uh, a common thing. We go to church, you hear somebody prophesy. How many of you even wrote it down? Can you tell me what was prophesied over your life at the last bonfire? You know, occasionally something means something to us. But very often we go from one event to the other like petulant children just waiting for the next blessing. How many of you like to watch your kids open presents at Christmas? You're embarrassed. They open it and go, oh, what's next? And they don't even know what they just got. That's a clear sign they have too much. We know that with children, but what do we know about ourselves? Why would God give us another word when we have not retained, have not grown, and have not transmitted what He's already given us? Lord, Lord, my name is Johnny. This is my sister Susie. Bless us four. No more. Gimme, give gimme, give my name is Jimmy. It's all I want. Keith Green said this in the 80s. He said, bless me, Lord, bless me, Lord, is all I ever hear. And it's true. We've raised up teachers that tell us what our itching ears want to hear. You want to vote for a Mormon? Then all of a sudden Mormons are Christians. You want to be rich? Well, we'll write books. You like Friday better than the other day? Every day can be Friday for you. This is absurd. The whole time, this self-centered body of water is dying all around us. It looks like a lake. And from a distance, you would swear it was an oasis, but I've been in it, friends. Both, the natural and the spiritual. It will not sustain life because it's not what God desires. Final thing I want to tell you about the Jewish educational system as we get back to transmitting and trusting and all of those things is that there were three houses of, of study. At six years old, you went to Bet Sefer. This was to master the book. You bet his house and sefer his book. From six to ten years old, you memorize the five books of the Torah. Five books, memorize sentence. That's an amazing thing. Can anybody in here quote an entire chapter of the Bible? Come on, not even out of Jude. How about a song? Are you not raising your hands because you're scared I'll call on you or, or uh, because you can't quote one chapter of the Bible? See, think about this. Between 6 and 10 years old, you'd be able to quote five books because you've been entrusted with something no other nation has given. But when the Gideons put a Bible in every child's hand in our country and one in 
every single hotel room. And then it was the best-selling book of all time. You didn't need to treasure it, did you? Were they doing a good thing? Of course they are. So is every Bible society that's ever handed out books. Has the blessing that was given to you, but you failed to transmit it, then become kind of a backwards curse? Isn't that strange? How could what was good for you end up being something that was bad for you? The same way a vitamin can. <coughs> we received and received and received and received, but we're never having to give. Yeah. How many of you share your testimony about Jesus? Good, good. Praise God, some hands going up. In your testimony, does it include the word? Or is it simply your story? You see, what have you been entrusted with? Did God speak to you from heaven and only share with you that you were a sinner and now you're saved? Or did he give you a book with 66 books inside of it and say you're to study this, learn it. It should be your very life. Study to show yourself approved. We think this is the job of preachers. If I'm a preacher, what are you? If I'm a preacher, what are you? Are you not all supposed to be proclaimers of the truth? We hire our preachers. Praise God, none of you hired me. And we hire them to do what we won't do. Proclaim. But all of you were called to be priests. Every one of you. Moses himself said, I wish all God's people were prophets. Jesus said, you'll do even greater things than I did. Yeah, this gospel went out to the whole world so that we could be like him. From Bet Sefer, you went to Bet Talmud. Bet Talmud is the house of learning from 10 to 14 years old. You learn all 39 books of the Older Testament and all of the oral traditions. By this time, most kids are dropping out. This is the age, forgive me, young ones, of puberty. This is the age when you're, for the first time, becoming strong young men and young women and you are actually valuable to work in fields and stuff. So at this point, some people are going... I probably can't do this. My education's going to stop. I'm going to go take what was deposited in me and I'm going to do something with it. They went home and worked in their father's businesses. But for the select few that could memorize all 39 books and all the oral traditions, they went on to Bet Midrash. This was from age 14 to 30. It was like applying to the Ivory League. You would apply to a rabbi and say, I've seen the way that you walk out the word. I have examined it and I want... To be like you. Come on now. Anybody ever applied for a job you really wanted? What you would be committing to was amazing at this stage. The Bible actually is based upon and quotes things that are in a written tradition of the Jews. When Jesus spoke about shaking the dust off of your feet, he was actually quoting Yozi ben Yozer, who used to say to his disciples, walk closely enough to your rabbi that the dust of his feet falls upon you. This was quite a commitment. You're going to follow somebody around, seeing how they walk, how they lie down, how they get up, how they go in and out of their houses, how they go in and out of their city gates, because your goal is not simply to understand them. Your goal is to be like them. You know, in Hebrew, to be a disciple is to be a Talmud. And it literally means one who learns. In Greek, it's to be a mathetes, one who studies. In Latin, it is a discipulus, which also means study. The problem with studying versus learning 
is when we move into Greek or we move into Latin, we're always learning something. We're always studying something. But the Hebrew, to learn was to walk when they walked, to step when they stepped, to reach out your hand when they did. Learning was an apprenticeship. What is so interesting about this is this is the nation, this is the group of people, this is the culture to which God entrusted His Word. The ties between a, a teacher and his student were greater than that of a father and a child. And, and the reason that they were greater was the rabbi said, your father brought you into the world, but your rabbi or your teacher teaches you to go into the next world. Maybe this is what Jesus had in mind in Matthew 10, 37, when he said, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. You ought to read that passage in Luke 14, 26. He said, if you don't hate your father or mother, you are not worthy of me. Under what context could he say that? Under what context could he mean that? If you don't understand what I'm entrusting to you, your responsibility to retain it, to grow it, and to transmit it, go back home to mama because you are not worth following me. Can you imagine how difficult that would be to hear? Let's get back to what we're entrusted with. Turn with me to 1 Timothy. I want to talk to you about entrusting through union. Entrusting through union. Do you have your bulletin? What's the first words in your bulletin under the notes section? Placement. Okay, we're not going to teach about placement. <laughs> the uh, first thing we're going to teach about is where it says personal or bar. Is it alright with you if I change the program? First yeah. Timothy 1. Let us read verse 2. To Timothy, my true son in the faith. What an interesting thing to say. In Greek, son is technon. There's a couple ways to say it, but technon means your offspring. But in Hebrew, that's not how you would say it. You would say to Timothy, my bar in the faith. And bar meant your son of because you act like them. What's Timothy Paul's biological child? No. Timothy's father was a Greek. His mother was a Jewess. His grandmother was a Jewess. They had learned the scriptures and taught the scriptures to him since he was young. But Paul stepped in with Timothy. He stepped in with Timothy and began to teach him. It was not based on a genetic obligation. It was based on the fact that Paul was a herald. He was sent to announce. He was an apostle. He was sent to people just like Timothy. He was a teacher. He was sent to explain what had been explained to him. How did he pick Timothy? Well, the Lord put him in his path. Why is Timothy a son? Because he learned to walk as Paul walked. He learned to imitate Paul's way of life. He learned to do things like Paul did. How many of you think the relationship with Paul and Timothy was special? Raise your hands. Almost the whole church. It depends on what we mean by special. It is special, I'll give you that. But it was not exclusive. Did you know that Titus is also called a son to Paul? Philemon is also called a son to Paul. All three of these men are called sons, and you know what none of them were? biologically related to Paul. So first off, when we're entrusted with something, we go find sons, people to pour into. Whether or not they're related makes no difference. 
Cody and Brandon are not related to me, but it makes no difference to me. I tell people they're my sons because God made them so. Gary Kenshin was not a blood relative to me. He was a relative because he married my mother. And let's face it, who wouldn't have? She was beautiful. Is beautiful. I guess we'll find out whether she listens to this message online. But he became a father to me because he taught me to walk as he walked. I learned how to interact with people. Things like you look a man in the eye and you give him a firm handshake were shown to me at an early age. He taught me like a father. Genesis 45, you don't have to turn there. Joseph became a father to Pharaoh. Isn't that an interesting thing? All of the commentators say, oh, well, the Pharaoh must have been very young, and he may well have been. That often aids in this. It's easier as a younger man to learn from an older man, but it is not required. Does it matter to you if Peter was older than Jesus? It doesn't. Why? Because Jesus had something to teach Peter, didn't he? See, our pride gets in the way here, so we assume that Pharaoh must have been much younger than Joseph, but according to Hebrew tradition, all Joseph needed to have was a revelation Pharaoh didn't have. And if he had that revelation and Pharaoh became uh, a benefit of it, a beneficiary of it, learning it, putting it into practice, then God made Joseph as a father to Pharaoh. Was Solomon the oldest man in Israel when he wrote the book of Proverbs? No. So in Proverbs 1.8, when he speaks as a father to a child, does this presuppose that he's the oldest man in the room? No, he simply has been entrusted with something. And after being entrusted with it, he retained it. He grew it. And he transmitted it. I would like to tell you that we need to be looking for bar relationships. People that can walk with us, be like us, and we can be like them. People of like mind, one spirit, one accord. This is usually what a congregation is supposed to be made of. So we can stand back and say... Oh, we don't get into those subjects here. We can stand back and know each other on a superficial level, but then it's not much like family, is it? Come on, Thanksgiving's coming up. Don't you have an uncle you know is going to bring up a subject you'd rather not talk about? Don't you have an aunt that you know when certain things are mentioned you're going to hear disapproval? Don't you have a family member that you absolutely know is going to bring up politics? Another one that is absolutely going to take a shot at your Christian faith? What are you people in boring families or are you sleeping? What, what is it? Okay, so you got the same kind of families I have. Why would the church be any different? It is the family of God. I want to encourage you that you've been entrusted with something and you are supposed to be entrusting others with it. Turn with me to the book of Esther. Let's talk about placement for a moment. In the book of Esther, we will be in the second chapter. Tell me when you're in the second chapter. Three of you are there, so I'm going to wait for the rest of you. In Esther, the second chapter, let us pick up around the fifth verse. Now there was in the citadel of Susa, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, 
who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features. And Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. What was Hadassah or Esther to Mordecai? Niece. Niece. Cousin, niece. These were the titles that should be given her. But how did Mordecai treat her? As a daughter, Hebrew bat. It carries the same idea with it that Hebrew son, bar, carries with it. He taught her the word. He taught her how to live. He taught her like a father should teach a daughter. But she wasn't his daughter. What an interesting thing, this kind of relationship. I wish the church could get this one. Esther was placed in Mordecai's life. How was she placed there? She was placed there through great personal hardship on Mordecai's part. She was placed there through great tragedy on Esther's part. The next time you lose a job and find yourself sitting with someone there, they may have been placed there. Maybe you lost your job the same day they did, so you have something to talk about. Next time somebody shows up in your life through undesirable circumstances, you need to ask yourself, were they placed here because I, among all the people on the earth, was entrusted with something? I was supposed to retain it. I'm supposed to grow it. And I'm supposed to transmit it. Is this person put here for that reason? One of the things that I love, this is really more in the fourth chapter at this point, is Mordecai became aware of a problem. A man named Haman wants to kill all of the Jews. Mordecai is aware of this problem long before Esther is aware of it. And you know where Esther lived at the time? In the king's palace. So an order that originated in the king's palace, Mordecai found out about before Esther found out, who lived in the king's palace. Come on, sometimes age and wisdom just has its benefits. You hang around with young people? So often we're talking about all the things that don't matter. <laughs> At some point we ought to grow out of that. We ought to be talking about the word when we walk along the road, when we sit down, when we, when we lie down or get up. We ought to be focusing on the right things. Mordecai had his ear to the ground. He was concerned about his people. So he became aware of a plot to kill the people. Now, if you're the teacher and you have a student and you find out that the fate of the entire nation is at stake, do you want the teacher to go handle the problem or do you want the student to go handle the problem? You can answer. The teacher. Teacher, not one person in here said student. It's an interesting thing. We have grown up with an idea. The idea that because Gabe is, how old are you, Gabe? Ten, Gabe sits at the kids' table. Right? We're going to have Thanksgiving. How many of you have a Thanksgiving table with a kids' table and an adult's table? What's going on in, in those rooms over there? Children's church. And what's going on over here? Adult church, right? And no doubt, at some age... It may not be appropriate to preach a two-hour message. You hear that? Two-hour message? I just want to make sure you're paying attention. Having said that, at what point do you move from the kids' table to the adults' table? At what point do those who are students get to participate as peers of teachers? When does that happen? 
You know, there are a lot of people that are great at raising children and very poor at raising adults. But the goal of raising a child is to produce an adult, is it not? Again, from the Jewish nation, we learn something. At 13 years old, they're old enough to read and understand the Word. So after reading a passage of the Word flawlessly, perfectly, they pronounced them bar mitzvah, son of the command. The father would raise his hands and say, I thank you, Lord, that I have completed my obligation where my child can now read your word for himself. The father didn't stop then. He kept teaching, but the child had a responsibility at that point that he was considered a man, a young, inexperienced, novice man, but a man nonetheless. From 13 to 30, he became proficient, and at 30, he took over everything that was his father's business, because when he's 30, his father is at least 50 and fit to supervise the work. <coughs> By the time the son was 50, he is supposed to be a master at it. This is the culture in which things were entrusted. They were entrusted so that by 13 years old, you would be taking serious responsibility for it. You would be retaining it and growing it. By the time you were 30, you could teach the people that were teaching you. But at 50, you should be a master of it. We have lost these things in our society. We think we went and heard a message. The other thing that we do is because of our age, we claim authority that we don't have. I think it's wonderful that you're 60 years old, 40 years old, 30 years old, 160 years old. But if you never grabbed hold of the revelation, you never retained it, grew it, and transmitted it, quite frankly, you're kind of a hollow vessel. It's time to start. When I was first born again, people often said, man, man, that dude's like Timothy. Man, he's, he's soaking up the word. He's like Timothy. He's showing himself to be approved. My question was always the same. If I'm Timothy, which one of you is going to be Paul? <laughs> I was always the youngest guy in the room that was serious about Jesus. Where were all of the others? Where were their children? See, we have this mentality that our children will be children until one day, snap, they'll become an adult. It doesn't work that way. It didn't work that way with you. This is a progressive thing that we grow in. And guess what? I'm not just talking about genetic children. When you think about your teenagers, friends, what would their life be like if at 13 years old you gave them serious responsibilities? Now, I know many of you don't. And you don't because you don't think they can handle the serious responsibilities. And then the question becomes, can they not handle it because you haven't given it to them and haven't taught them, haven't let them fail so that you can teach them success? Now, at 30, most of the time, fathers do not feel like their sons can do what they should do. That is so sad. In my own life, I remember an experience trying to back up a boat trailer. And the older, wiser man kept telling me, move, get out of the way, you don't know how to do this, I'll do it. If I hadn't been so stubborn and tenacious, so you can pry my dead fingers off of this steering wheel, you will not take this from me. Now, the man was not a Christian. And I frankly was not being very godly at the moment, but you know what I did do? I learned to back up a boat trailer. I can do figure eights with them all day long. Because it was important to me. We have a mentality that pushes anybody to the side that's not as proficient as we are. And this is failing in the church. It is so failing. 
This is why our 18-year-olds don't know anything about Jesus. You never made it count for them. And at 25, they're starting to have an awakening, but they are 12 years behind the curve. Maybe if our teenagers had some purpose in their lives, some serious purpose in their lives, they wouldn't have to be 30 before they became decent human beings. Mordecai didn't fix the problem that he saw. What did he do? He went straight to his student. You get that? In the fourth chapter, 12th verse, he goes straight to her. He tells her all about it. And you know what she does? Resist. <sighs> I don't know if you know Mordecai, but I get killed for doing what you're telling me to do. But what did he raise her for? He raised her to trust him, to trust his God. And so he didn't scold her. You know what he did for her? He validated her. He said, who knows, but that you were raised up for such a time as this. He told her that with God's help, she had what it took for this task. Now, I don't know about you, but I can be a little selfish. Am I the only one in the room that can be selfish? If my life's on the hand, on the line, you know whose hands I want on the trigger? Mine. I've ridden with some of you. Some of you cannot, you would never let anybody chauffeur you anywhere if your body worked. I mean, if you had a choice, you drive. And that's a metaphor for your whole life, if we're honest. Nobody else is going to get a shot. I'm in control. You know what's wrong with that? There will never be anyone that rises to your level of proficiency. There will never be any students that surpass you. You hear how selfish that is? How wrong that is? And yet it is the model that most of us fathers are used to. Son's trying to drive a nail. Move, man. You've been it three times. You're going to carry this up. You know how long it's going to take us to rebuild this? How long will it take you to rebuild that child who never grows up? And it's not just our biological kids. I want you to understand something. If your leadership remains, the pastor's way up here, and you, the congregation, way down here, you know what you never get good at? Being who God called you to be. The way that this is supposed to work is that there should be a union. Because you know what Mordecai realized? Hadassah can do something I can't do. My God, what a brilliant revelation. It is so difficult for older, more accomplished people to realize that youth and inexperience still means they can do something you can't do. You want me to give you an example? Anybody in here over the age of 60 want to do 200 push-ups? But can we find an 18-year-old that can do it? God has apportioned different things at different ages in our life. He has apportioned it. Hadassah could do something Mordecai could not do. She could use all the charm, all the beauty, all the wisdom that God had given her and Mordecai had grown in her to move the king's heart. Mordecai never could. Did this mean that Hadassah didn't need Mordecai? She wouldn't even know there was a problem if there wasn't a Mordecai. She wouldn't know what to do if there wasn't a Mordecai. We need friends, teachers, and students but we need them at some point to become peers. Come on, anybody in here ever see Band of Brothers or any war movie? Yeah. At some point, you better surpass your drill sergeant or you're not going to be a very good soldier. His job is to train soldiers. Hmm. Maybe we ought to move on from this. It took two. It took the young and the old. It took the student and the teacher to save 
the nation. Maybe the reason our nation is going to hell in a handbasket is we have such a gulf, such a divide. You've heard me say many times in the last month that all God's generals are gone. That men like Leonard Ravenhill, men like David Wilkerson, men who have gone before us and done mighty things, the question is, where are their sons? Oh, Eric, how insensitive of you. That person only had daughters. You're missing the point. Where are the people that have become their equals? This is the goal of this ministry. We set the bar low. You only have to rise as high as your leadership. <laughs> I'm kidding. You have to rise to Jesus. <laughs> this is the goal of this ministry. The goal of this ministry is that we didn't wait for Larissa to turn 18 before we saw worth in her. We will not wait for Nolan to reach the age of 40 before we expect good things out of his life. We will not wait for Judah because the kingdom needs them now. Amen. You know what else we will not do? We will not be Hadassah resisting Mordecai's advice. We will not do it because it will condemn us to repeat any mistakes Mordecai ever made denying ourselves the benefit of Mordecai's wisdom. The same problem we have with our teenagers, ironically, we have with our elderly folks. The teenagers are purposeless. They have nothing of any consequence to do. We've done the same thing in this nation to our geriatric community. We've not valued them for their wisdom. We've seen their silver hair as something that should be dyed or hidden. So that when a man interviews for a job and is in his 60s, that is his chief concern. When it ought to be his chief badge of honor. I think on both ends of the spectrum, what is needed is an injection of godly purpose. And when you have it, when you've been entrusted with it, you grow it, you want to transmit it. The most amazing thing happens to older men. They become concerned near the age of their death. In the last 10, 15 years of their life, making sure people know where they came from. They do things like hang up pictures of relatives you have never seen before. Tell you stories of people you didn't know existed. In my family, some of the older men actually took me to the graveyards of people I'd never heard of before. Because you're concerned. You want to leave a legacy behind. Friends, the legacy that we leave is found in the generation behind us, not the stories we tell. I'm very glad to be reunited with Stephen after all of these years. I was very glad to be reunited with Charlie Brown after all of these years. But if I had never been reunited, I would still remember that one taught me to use a miter saw. The other <laughs> would sit with me in a coffee house and talk with me about things of God, seeing worth in what I had to say when I was of no account and too young to matter. They added something to my life. You understand what I'm telling you? These relationships are important. They're needed. You were never called to be isolated. Turn with me to 2 Kings. You'll be in the second chapter. Wouldn't that be nice? 2 Kings, 2 chapter. See how easy that is? <laughs> Don't tell anybody. In the kingdom, we grow things by having union with people, sincerely bonding, letting two lives function more like one, like a father-son relationship. We take advantage of the people God has placed in our lives. We don't overlook the most obvious thing in the world, which is the person sitting in front of you. And in 2 Kings, we learn something else. 
Look at verse 1. When the Lord was about... Of chapter 2. 2 Kings 2. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah said to Elisha, which is not how I like to pronounce it, but you understand why. We're on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. A very normal response. God sent me. You stay here. But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. I'm going to tell you three times this happened. Three times the man of God was called. His disciple, his student was told, stay here, this doesn't really concern you. And three times the young man would not be dissuaded. He had tenacious faith and trust. So near the end of this passage, 8, 9, 10th verse, after showing tenacity in following after his mentor, his mentor says, what can I do for you? He asked a very difficult thing. He said, I want the blessing that is reserved for our firstborn son. I followed you three times when you tried to dissuade me. It was with great personal sacrifice that I chased after you because it's worth it. I don't just want you to pass to me what you inherited, what you were entrusted with. I want you to pass to me even more. I want twice what you have. Friends, this is boggling to the mind of Western people. We think that a student learns from their teacher but never becomes any more than their teacher. If you've known as many teachers as I have, you would know how silly that is. How many people are teaching marketing and have never marketed a pencil? Teaching economics and have never worked in the business community. They better be producing people that are better than they are because frankly they would fail. There has got to be a heart somewhere that says, I want to learn from you like a father, but I want to take this further than you ever did. You know what's wrong with that? Among prideful, selfish, self-centered people. We say we want those things, but the moment they begin to show promise, we want to squelch it and make sure they understand they're still the student. You're, still, you, you're not where I am yet. So the demand at 18 is not really a man. He can die and fight, fight and die for his country and vote, but he's not a man. And then at 30, he still doesn't know what he's talking about. And at 50, he won't know what he's talking about because his teacher will always be 25 years older than him. And by that age, has forgotten that they once too were 18, 25, 50. I was speaking with a man in another country about his son here. Just 34 years old. I mean, Eric, what, I mean, he's still a kid. I said, if he's a kid at 34 years old, what were you? He's been born again longer than you were at 34. Seeing Jesus, been walking with Jesus, what were you through that? But the man was just trapped in his paradigm. So you don't understand. When you raise somebody, Eric, I mean, it's difficult to see them any other way. So you don't understand what great sin that is. God has a calling on his life, same as yours. The difference is, is yours is two-thirds over and his has just begun. Who do you want to invest in? Both men are needed, if we're honest. Both men are absolutely needed. We're going to get to that. Growth. Three times he was discouraged from following, but he was tenacious. We need to be tenacious about getting what others were entrusted with. He was there when his master was taken. 
You know how many people will not finish where they started? He was there at the end. He saw miracles and he showed faithfulness. So he got twice what his mentor had. Function. Y'all see function written in your bulletin? Yeah. I'm going to tell you about function because I've taught this many times. And I want to get to the others. For function, this is Acts 9.27. And in Acts 9.27, what we're going to find out is that Barnabas speaks for Paul. In 9.27 it says, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord. And he goes on to describe it. Barnabas took Saul, later to be called Paul, to the other apostles and tried to help him become included. In Acts 11.22, 11.25, and 11.30, it could not be any clearer that the work at the church of Antioch was given to Barnabas. But do you know who Barnabas went and got to include in his work? Paul. Yeah, by the time we get to Acts 14, though, there's a transition that is occurring. Paul is called a chief speaker. He's likened unto Hermes. But Barnabas is likened unto Zeus because he was older. Why is it that the older man was not the chief speaker? Why is it that the man who went and got the young man and included him in his work was now not chief? Because Barnabas recognized function where he saw it. His function was to go identify, to go nurture, to go invest in. Paul's function was all the get together different, and yet they overlapped and not mutually exclusive, just different. Paul was going to go forward where no man had before. He was going to write two-thirds of the New Testament. He was going to give us life for the gospel. This was different than Barnabas. But Barnabas was not so threatened that he had to make sure Paul stayed under his thumb. And Paul was not so young and arrogant that he could not benefit from Barnabas. They'd both been entrusted with something. So when a difference brought them in different ways, what did Paul do? He went and found his true son in the faith, Timothy. What did Barnabas do? He went and found John Mark, another one with enough potential that he ended up writing the book of Mark and the Gospels. You see how important it is to be entrusted with something? It is a personal issue. It is taking people to be sons. It is a placement issue. God has already placed them in your life and will continue to. It is a growth issue. What you're given, you must grow like a hardworking farmer. It is a function issue. Charlie and I have different functions that has not stopped us from sowing into each other's lives. Steve and I have different functions. Matthew and I have vastly different functions and yet they overlap enough that we are co-laborers in this. The richest thing about my life, friends, are the men that I can name that we have shared our lives with each other. I don't mean just friends. I mean shared our lives with each other. There's a reason that I was the best man in 13 weddings in 12 months. Think about that. 13 weddings, 12 months. I shared my life with people and somebody shared theirs with me. This is kingdom. That is the kingdom. Let's talk about investment. In Exodus 17, 9, I'll read it to you. Our time is winding down. I hope it won't wind down so much that you miss these last points. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. 
Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. Like so many examples we've seen before, their function is different. Their age is different. They're not genetically related. But you know what? Moses recognized he had a place. It was on top of the hill praying. And Joshua had a place. Where was it? In the valley with a sword in his hand. At a certain age, one needs to pray while one goes to war. That's just how that works, friends. You need the man on top and you need the man in the valley. If Joshua is not there, what is Moses praying for? He's praying for a Joshua to appear. If Joshua is down there fighting but Moses doesn't have his hands raised, what is the net result of that? Loss. The Bible declares it. We need both men, not simply united. United is when Gabe and I have one purpose and we go out and do that and then afterwards we go somewhere else. They need to be married. I mean that as a metaphor. <laughs> Not San Francisco. <laughs> they need to have inseparable callings, lifelong covenants that only separate us to their function. No self-interest in it. Otherwise, one won't fight the other's battle. And one won't pray for the other's battle. They won't do it. Because they're only interested in, well, when this day's over, what about me? Have you noticed that one man will pour into another only if it serves his ministry? What happens if his ministry is somewhere else? Will you still pray for him? Will you still pour into him? Come on now. Do you think Gabe Mays is less cold because he's in another state? Do you think we should support him less? Care about him less? Pray for him less? How about Mandy? Mandy Dime. Should we, should we pray for Mandy less? But she's somewhere else. We're not going to get anything out of it, are we? She's not related to us. You see how the kingdom works? Do you think that she would qualify to be a bat, a daughter of this ministry? Yeah. Well, they're sure finding out in Arkansas what we teach here. <laughs> Exodus 24, 13 really is the point, though. You could say, well, Joshua's job is to fight. Moses' job is to pray. We both have our jobs. Let's stick to it. Exodus 24, 13 says, Then Moses set out with Joshua his aid, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. And you know what else? Joshua went with him. Well, if Joshua's job is to fight, why is he going with Moses on the mountain? Because Moses recognized Joshua had more potential than today's capabilities and tomorrow might need it. Have you considered that? When thinking about C.J. Darren, what tomorrow might be needed that you can invest in C.J. today? I think about it all of the time with Judah. There will be a day I will be with the Lord. He will still be walking on the earth. What will the earth need out of Judah that I can give him today? And maybe I don't even have it. But I have a seed. And he will grow it. Do you want your sons to be better men of God than you? We all say yes. We all say yes. What are you doing to help them surpass you? It won't happen by saying, move, I'll back up the trailer. It won't happen. You know what they need to be allowed to do? Fail some and still get your validation. Still get your support. Get another turn at bat. Did you come out of the womb ready? You had an Xbox controller if you were born in the last 15 years, but you weren't ready. They had different functions and strengths, but Moses included Joshua. You know how long he invested in him? Well over 40 years. Think about that. Now, young people think about this. Joshua is investing something in Moses for 40 years. You know what he's doing? He's fighting the battles that Moses said to fight. 
He's learning from him, honoring him for 40 years. But you know what the beautiful part about it is? Moses had a prophetic calling that Joshua, he didn't have it. Not like Moses. Joshua had a battle anointing that Moses didn't have. I mean, Moses could fight. Beat up people at wells. He led Israel in some battles. But not like Joshua. You got the impression Joshua could crack skulls. But by the end of Joshua's life, you know what he could do? Both. Both. He could hear from God and go walk and fire naked. He could dig up that wedge right out of his tent. He could hear from God and make decisions because he had been with Moses. See, that's how this works. Passing a baton means you would never get anything that your predecessor didn't have. I'm saying you get all that and you grow it. Moses was a stronger prophetic voice and Joshua was a stronger soldier, but in the end, because of their union, Joshua was able to lead just like Moses and hear this, go places that Moses never could. Have you thought about that? Where has God called you that Eric cannot go? Where has God called you that I could never take the gospel? I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to try to outrun you in every direction. As long as I've got, I'm going to make it hard for you to surpass me. But you're called to surpass me. And Matthew and Charlie and Steve. You're called to. You know why? We haven't really done our jobs if you're not. Our job was to take what was given us, to grow it, to transmit it to you. That means you get the best we ever had and you retain it and grow it and then transmit it. You know what that means? That means the kingdom is not stagnant. That means that the kingdom is ever expanding and not condemned to the revelation that somebody had 200 years ago, 2,000 years ago, or 5,000 years ago. You know why I will not be a Methodist church? It's not because I don't like their method, although I don't like them all. I won't be a Baptist church or a Lutheran church. I will not run with a revelation that was given somebody three centuries ago as if that's all there is. I won't do it. Because God has spoken to me things that they did not know. Now, if all of those people and all of those churches begin speaking in other tongues, prophesying and seeing visions, I'll consider it. But until then then I'm going to stick without a denominational title. Because God showed me something that their framework precludes. That's easy when we're talking about them. Are there prophets in our children's church? Yeah. Are there apostles sitting in these chairs? What holds us back? One thing that might be considered is David's relationship with Saul. In the book of Samuel, in the 18th chapter and the 8th verse, I'll tell you about it. You should write it down, though. Write it under not succession. You know what's wrong with succession? Gabe, would you like to succeed your dad? That means I have to die. It means he's not any good. He has no worth until I'm gone. What would that make me do? You know exactly what it would make me do because you've watched it for centuries. I have to hold him down so that there's still a reason for me to be here. Yeah. You know what's wrong with a 90-year-old pastor and no other pastors? He didn't do his job for 90 years. That's what's wrong with it. Should you be a pastor at 90? Absolutely. 
absolutely, you should just also have about a thousand other men that can do what you did and maybe do some of it better. That's how it should work. I would submit to you that Saul was changed into a different person in the 13th chapter of 1 Samuel. Different person, different heart. He wasn't getting it all right. In fact, God had already said, I'm going to take the kingdom out of your hands and give it to somebody else. But when a giant needed killing, did Saul give his blessing to David? Yeah. Yeah. He commissioned him. Was Saul king in Israel? So it worked with a younger man receiving a commission from an older man, even though the older man was imperfect. And they worked in unison. Do you know how they worked in unison? One had the authority and the other had the drive, so he gave him some of his authority to go do it. Was that working out good for Israel? Yeah. They're, they're winning battles. The whole 18th chapter of 1 Samuel, they're still winning battles. But something happened in Saul's heart. He heard some of the girls singing. You know what they were singing? Saul's killed his thousands, but David's killed his ten thousands. The Bible says this refrain got under Saul's skin. He said, what else could he want from me but the kingdom? Well, that's exactly what he should want because that's what God called him to have. Amen. Saul begins at that moment trying to kill David. He spent 15 years trying to kill him. What if he had spent those 15 years raising him up to be a better king than he is? See, this is going on in ministry after ministry all over the earth. We should be raising up the men that would be better than we are, but instead, we hold them down. I say no. I'm just going to jump out there and say no. We're going to do something that makes young men uncomfortable. We're going to expect you to be real men. We're going to do something that makes older men uncomfortable. We're going to expect you to stand back and realize there are some things you can't do and some things only you can do. We're going to look for an appropriate relationship where we have fathers in our lives, brothers in our lives, and sons in our lives. And here's a secret. They don't have to be related to you and they do not have to be older or younger than you. Hmm? Could Jesus be a teacher to you even though he was only 30? Then why can another 30-year-old not be a teacher to you? If Timothy and Philemon can be sons to Paul, I get it. They were Jews. At least Timothy was. Of course, Titus wasn't. So what if they're not genetically related to you? It makes no difference. It's time we move past these types of succession mentalities in the kingdom. And we try to get into something altogether different. We try to get into serious unity. The kind that a husband and wife would have, although slightly modified. Should a husband care about his wife? Should a wife care about her husband? Should they lay down everything for each other? Yes. Didn't Jesus say, no greater love hath one man for another than he lay down his life for him? Yes. Didn't he tell you to love your neighbor? Yes. So why aren't we laying down our lives for each other? We had a men's retreat. I only say that because you ladies get to do it more than we do. And at the men's retreat, we began to pray and seek God for vision in our lives. And in the bills of our hat, we wrote things. We wrote whatever we felt like the Lord said. And I wrote the strangest thing in my hat. It bothered me for several weeks, but it's what I felt like the Lord said. I didn't understand it until about a week ago. Matthew also wrote something in his hat. I really, I thought it was obvious. I didn't, didn't really get it. Didn't know why it was important to him. And suddenly I understood it. My hat put, die for my brother's vision. 
That's a strange, disconcerting kind of thing. And yet it is the call of the gospel. That you be willing to die that your brother succeed. That is the call of the kingdom. Matthew wrote in his, I need my brothers, and my brothers need me. This is the way ministry works, friends. Ministry works when your ambition, your whatever, takes a back seat to the other's development. Because we need each other. That's how the kingdom is supposed to work. How did you get what you were given? Somebody had to give it to you. John 15 says something that's worth closing with. I'm not promising we're closing. I'm telling you it's worth closing. <laughs> we cooked for you. Actually, we all cooked for each other. The church cooked. I didn't cook, Cass. <laughs> we all have our function in our calling. In John 15... Turn with me to verse 15. And please, everybody who has a Bible, be there. If you don't have a Bible, look on with somebody who does. If you have a cell phone, don't be texting with it. You can look at your Bible app. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go bear fruit, fruit that lasts. You remember the three Jewish schools? Bet Sefer, Bet Talmud, Bet Midrash? Where did Jesus find the Disciples. Matthew was in a tax collecting booth. James and John were fishing. Why weren't they learning from some rabbi somewhere? If they applied, they got turned down. Maybe they dropped out. Maybe they never could learn everything. Why did you apply to a particular rabbi? You wanted to be just like him. And he would either accept or reject you. How rejected would you feel, Jacob, if you applied? And I said, you don't possess the ability. Go home. How would you feel? You ever wondered why these men dropped everything? Or, hey, if I showed up at your job, right? You're out there bending two-inch conduit, right? You work in a saddle on a long pool or something. And I said, Jorge, put down that conduit. I'm going to show you how to fish for men. And I turned and just walked that way. You think Jorge's throwing down his conduit, taking off his tool belt, marching off the job? Later, I'm out of here, going with Eric. Probably not, huh? You kind of look like, who is that dude? That's my pastor. I don't know what's wrong with him. <laughs> Am I wrong? Am I telling the truth? So why did these men drop everything? You say, because it's Jesus. They obviously didn't know he was the son of God at this point. So why did they do it? Because the highest honor that you could possibly have would be to apply for a rabbi's position and he choose you and this rabbi came to get them. So now he's about to die. And what is he telling them? You didn't choose me. I chose you. See, you have the ability to be just like me. 
He takes it a step further. Keep reading. He goes on to say, you will do even greater things. What Jesus was given, He retained it. He grew it. And He transmitted it. And that's why His life is the example of perfection. He could have just said, I, gave, I got it all from my Father. I got it. Don't know what's wrong with you guys. I got it. But He didn't. He gave it to them. And He expected them to go bear fruit with it. To go get more. We're not in a relay race and you're not being handed a baton. Instead, we're in a long relationship where we learn to walk hand in hand, step in step. You learn to walk with Jesus as we walk with Jesus and you go further than we do. That's how it's supposed to be. Did you hear when we did communion today? For what I received from the Lord Jesus, that I passed on to you. Did you hear Paul say that? That is a Jewish formula that goes to the Pirakot Avot, the ethics of our fathers. They read it every single Sabbath. It says, what Moses received on Sinai, Moses gave to Joshua. What Joshua received from Moses, he gave to the elders. What the elders received from Joshua, they gave to, and it forms an unbroken line. You know why? They viewed it as a way of life, a deposit, a heavenly revelation that was worth grabbing hold of. And they were looking for people to give it to, but they were limited to their own relations, to genetics, to the bondages of age groupings, to the bondages of male and female separations. They were limited in all of those ways. In Christ, we're limited in none of those ways. But you know what we've not done? taking it as seriously as they did. Otherwise, we would have won the world by now. We really would have. My hope is that you ask yourself, who was placed in your life? Who is in your life right now that it is unselfish for you to pour into? You're not using them to pay your rent. You're not only hanging out with them because of something they could do for you. But your job is to pour something into them and you may never get anything out of it. Who did you put in your life like that? Who can you treat like a son? Or who can you treat like your father? Because as bad as sons need to be mentored, men need to be fathers. Need a purpose. Who can you help grow beyond yourself? Who, when you're looking around, do you say, that guy could not only do what I do, he could go further? And have you told him? Who has the potential to function differently than you, but you can see that something's more complete about the two of you if you walk together? Who can be your brother? Who can you invest in, but never compete with? Jesus shared his covenant and it has left us better people. Who can we go share that same covenant with? I'm going to put those visitor cards at the front. This message was not a ploy to get you to go invite people to our church. It's an example of how you invite people into your life. You know what? I 
if I walked up to you and you didn't know me, I said, hey, Justice, how you doing? I said, how do you know my name? What's well, on your name tag, Justice? Look, I'm a teacher. Would you like to be my student? Justice is probably going to look at me like, dude, you're crazy. And uh, I feel better if you stood a little further away from me. But if I meet Justice in the workplace and through the natural conversation of our day, I have made it my goal to talk about the word when I get up, when I sit down, when I lie, when I wake, when I go in and out of the house, when I eat, when I do all of those things. You know what Justice is going to notice? This guy knows some things about the word I don't yet know. I never have to announce myself as a teacher. He never has to announce himself as a student. You know what happens? We've shared our lives with each other and God put everybody in the right order of place. This is how it works, friend. You should not need a card that says you're a pastor. All you need is people that view you that way. You understand? If you share your lives, everything else will take care of itself. And I want to tell you, you don't go out and seek just to find sons. You go out to share your life and God will give you a son. He'll give you a father and he'll give you a brother. That's how that works. You may mistake it at first. You might think, I'm obviously here to teach this person. God has a beautiful way of humbling you. He does this because it causes his kingdom to 